The old adage, of course, is that the only constant is change. And while the political news has been filled with rapid-fire change this week, it's happening in the economy, too. All around us, in big ways and little ones. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And we are going to start with changes to the way millions of Americans interact with the government through technology. Congress is soon set to vote on the Farm Bill, which happens every five years. In some ways, the legislation's name is a little misleading, because while it does provide support and subsidies to farmers, the bulk of the money in the bill goes to things like SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps. Previously on this show, we've talked about what happens when work requirements are instituted in social welfare programs. Today, we're looking at the intersection of government programs, like SNAP, and technology. Recently, there's been a pretty high-profile fight between a small startup called Propel that let SNAP recipients track their spending on their phones and the big government contractor Conduent that runs SNAP in 25 states. It's just one example of where old and new ways of doing business collide and can cause headaches for people's everyday lives. To talk about it, we have Josh Miller. He was director of product in the Obama White House. He now works in venture capital, focusing on underserved communities. Welcome to the show. Thank you. One of the things that I think is confusing for people is to try to understand how a great big government program, like, say, SNAP, known to most people as food stamps, um, can adapt to the world we live in now. From a technological standpoint, how do people experience it? How do users experience it? Yeah. So SNAP, for example, uh, used to be print out essentially coupons. They'd be little printed pieces of paper. In the late 90s, uh, the government transitioned over to a system called EBT, um, which are essentially, you can think of them like... Electronic benefit transfer. Yeah, you can think of them like debit cards. The underlying technology hasn't changed all that much since the late 90s. On top of that underlying system, there are various ways that citizens interact with SNAP. It could be signing up for the program, which often requires an in-person piece of paper or fax. It could be checking how much money you have left in the third week of the month because you need to get groceries for your family. So in some states, you have to call a 1-800 number, you know, memorize your 10-digit pin or whatever it is, hit pound, and it'll, you know, spit back out, you have $7.28 left. And there have been a number of kind of digital services, namely websites and web services that have been layered on since then. One of the reasons that we're talking about this is a sort of fight between – a startup company, Propel, that has been using an app to allow people to check their balances, do things like that, and the underlying government contractor that administers the program. And I guess I'm wondering, this sort of conflict between the cutting-edge tech version uh, and the big kind of company that carries the government contract, how common is that when we think about how government programs are administered in the 21st century. So the thing that completely blew my mind when I joined the administration, I was, in retrospect, completely ignorant. And you came from from the tech world. I came from the private sector. I built a technology startup, sold it to Facebook, worked at Facebook. I thought, because I read the New York Times and listened to NPR Weekend uh, Marketplace, that I knew how technology was built in the government. Mm -hmm. I was completely wrong in one big key area. 
most government technology services are not built by the government. They're built by private sector corporations, government contractors on behalf of the government. So whether you're calling a healthcare.gov hotline and speaking to an individual or going to their website or you're checking your SNAP balance, that technology is actually not built by the government. It's built by private contractors. So I think that's incredibly important in looking at a situation like the one you're covering today because you have to look at the incentives. The incentive of a private contractor, which is a private for-profit corporation, is to maximize the amount of money they make with as little effort as possible. If you work at the USDA and FNS administering the SNAP program, your mission and your incentive is to feed as many Americans as quickly and effectively as possible. The Food and Nutrition Service. Yes. And so that tends to conflict at times. I mean, this is sort of a fascinating question about government and capitalism and the different goals that they seek. Because if you wanted to take the purely capitalist perspective, you would say open all of this up and increase competition to multiple different companies to to try to, you know, get the best experience for the user. And yet government runs with consistency and I want to pay one vendor and make that something I can do year after year. Are are there any incentives in government, do you think, to essentially have more capitalistic competition uh, to to make things better for citizens? One thing that I found, found very surprising is that oftentimes when we wanted to build something either at the White House or in an agency, one of the biggest constraints was budget, was where's the money going to come from or the resources to fund this? Most of the time, or a lot of the time, they were constrained because of the conservative view that there should be a small government. And one of the things I think that's interesting about that is that if you look at the amount of money we spend on contractors for any given service relative to what it would cost if we had the talent in-house, we spend a lot more money on private sector companies in the name of small government than we would if we had that expertise on staff. I don't want to romanticize the private sector. The takeaway from this interview should not be we want Facebook or Twitter or the private sector to build government services. I think the world we need to get to is that we're increasingly living in a world of digital technologies being integral in our day-to-day life. It is very important that the government is as effective at building those services for citizen services as the private sector. And that's going to require more people in the government with those expertise, not more money and more attention flowing to how do we offload all these government digital tools to the private sector. And that's why I think we really need to look at procurement law uh, and re-examine how we build technology in the government. Josh Miller, thank you very much. No problem. Any day now, the Supreme Court is expected to decide if states can legalize sports betting. What do you need to know about this? Marketplace's Andy Euler is here to help, starting with a little background and context to the Supreme Court case. The court heard arguments late last year on a case called NCAA versus Christie, named for the then governor of New Jersey, that could invalidate the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. Now, what's that? It's a 1992 law that bans sports betting in most states. Now, I say most because the PASPA Act, as it's come to be called, grandfathered in four states that had already legalized sports betting, Nevada, Oregon, Delaware, and Montana. New Jersey is arguing that the federal government's overstepping its bounds and that states should be allowed to make their own sports betting laws. 
Okay, now that we know the basics, here's point one of what you need to know about sports betting in the U.S. Gambling can be traced back to the origins of this country. Betting enthusiasts like to remind folks that some of the American Revolution was funded through state lotteries. Now, gambling on sports is another thing altogether. And the history is basically a back and forth between the states enacting gambling laws and then gamblers figuring out a way to get around those laws. That, of course, includes ties to the mob and bookies that still run gambling circuits in cities in states where legal gambling isn't an option. Now, the state of Nevada stepped out on its own and legalized sports betting in 1949, thinking it would boost tourism, which it did. Last year, Nevada brought in $250 million in revenue through its legal sports books. That's why Las Vegas and Nevada are thought of as the center of sports betting in this country. So a lot of gambling outside those four grandfathered-in states has gone underground, but regulations have cropped up over the years. That brings us to our next point. The second thing you need to know is regulation normally follows big sports scandals. There was a famous baseball Black Sox scandal in 1919 where members of the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the World Series for a bribe. States quickly began banning gambling by targeting the gaming operators and also the bookies. And then federally, it still wasn't legal. Then the law the Supreme Court is deliberating right now was passed. In 1992, the public's confidence in the purity of sporting events had again diminished following a wave of scandals. You might remember Pete Rose and betting on baseball games or Tulane University basketball players accused of shaving points in 1985. But as you may have guessed, that was not the end of things. And part of that is because gambling is not just a U.S. issue. The third thing you need to know is basically people like to gamble and not just Americans. Other nations deal with it differently, though. For brevity's sake, let's just focus on the U.K. There, all gambling is regulated by the Gambling Commission, which is part of the Department for Digital, Culture, Media, and Sport. Lots of gamblers in the U.K. bet through shops. You can see them all over the place when you walk down the street. They kind of look like a Walgreens. It's said that London alone has a 1,000 betting shops. The U.K.'s Gambling Commission also regulates online sports betting, something we don't really deal with in the United States unless you're betting on a foreign website. The U.K.'s online market is estimated to be worth more than £650 million. Let's go back to those online sites. Turns out they're part of a long history of working around gambling laws. That's the fourth thing you need to know. For as long as there's been competitive sports in the U.S., Americans have been betting on the outcome and getting around the legality of it, such as gambling through online betting sites, using a VPN or virtual private network in order to access betting sites in other countries where that betting is legal. And as long as you're not betting on a website located here in the U.S., the government's going to have a hard time prosecuting. But if sports betting becomes legal, that could mean big money for media companies and state taxes. So what's the fifth thing? The last thing you need to know is if the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act gets overturned by the Supreme Court, legal gambling is going to spread. If the court says current law is fine and doesn't violate the Tenth Amendment, then nothing really happens. A federal ban on gambling would have to be repealed, amended, or replaced by Congress, and that's going to take a lot longer for legal sports gambling to become a reality in the U.S. If it is overturned, though, then the repeal goes into effect immediately. And if the court rules that the act is unconstitutional, it would open the doors for other states who want to legalize sports betting to make that happen. Now, a bunch of states, including New York and Pennsylvania, have already started plotting. 
Annually, illegal sports betting is a $150 billion industry, so the end of PASPA could mean serious tax revenue. Marketplace's Andy Euler with five things you need to know about the sports betting case. Oh, and by the way, people are, of course, taking odds online about how the court will decide. Another week, another sometimes dizzying round of news stories. So as we do every week, we're going to take a look at the news by the numbers with Marketplace producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 112. That's so many candles the oldest man in America will blow out this weekend. Wow, that's like four and a half times older than me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Richard Overton told reporters that the secret to a long life is, quote, don't die. The Texan loves his whiskey, and he says he puts a little bourbon in his morning coffee. He drinks a lot of coffee and apparently smokes more than 12 cigars a day. Man, what a life. 2019. That's the year Cape Town in South Africa is now expected to run out of water. Day zero was calculated for February, then pushed back to July, and now it's next year. 4.3 million Cape Tonians will get a break thanks to the rain and severe cutbacks on household water use. For a while, local residents could only use about 13 gallons of water per person per day. Now it's 23 gallons per person, but the city warns that day zero can still become a definite date. Five. That's where California lands on the list of the world's largest economies, the first time since 2002. The Golden State beat the UK's economic output, but was surpassed by, well, the US as a whole, China, Japan, and Germany. So what helped California win the number five spot? Financial services, real estate, manufacturing, and yes, of course, Silicon Valley helped a lot. West Coast, best coast, baby. Of all the changes to our economy in the past decade, One of the biggest is the rise of the sharing economy, and that, of course, includes Airbnb. But new research in San Francisco finds that Asian and Hispanic hosts tend to charge less for their rentals than their white counterparts, which means they're missing out on potential income. Here's one experience. I am Mishi Hotchkiss, and I am an Airbnb host. I'm in San Francisco, and I've been doing it for four years. I got a divorce, and so I needed to make some extra money in order to stay in my house. I have a a friend who lives up the street, and she Airbnbs her place, so she told me that that's what I should do with the extra bedroom and bathroom in my house. I believe it's $1.25 a night and then an extra $25 for extra person, so anywhere from $1.25 to $1.50. I think I just looked at others and just did the average. It went well, and I was pretty much booked all the time. And then Airbnb came out with their own system in suggesting what I should charge. So I used that for a little while, and it was about $85. And I was booked all the time as well, but I just raised it back to 100 I was just getting worried about not being booked, and I think Airbnb has become more and more popular, and I thought maybe there was more competition, so I thought it was a good idea to lower it, but now I've 
put it back up, but it's still $25 less than it was four years ago. That was Airbnb host Mishi Hotchkiss. For more on the Airbnb study, I spoke with Venu Kakar. She's an assistant professor of economics at San Francisco State University, and she did the research with a team of students. Our study really focuses on an interesting aspect of peer-to-peer e-commerce. And if you look at it, peer-to-peer e-commerce has experienced a shift from the online marketplace being anonymous to it becoming characterized by the personalization of buyers and sellers online. And, and this personalization includes buyer reviews, personal pictures and profiles, and other biographical information that is intended to reduce the perceived purchase risk or to facilitate trust in the sellers. And this entire phenomenon has made the online marketplace very susceptible to traditional market failures, including potential racial discrimination. So now buyers have the information to bypass sellers based on personal information such as race or gender um, in a manner that was similar to bypassing a brick-and-mortar store. Wow. And so we are examining in this study the effect of online host information such as race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, on the price of available rental listings in San Francisco on Airbnb.com. And so when you look at that data, were you able to tell who was making that choice? Was it was it white people who were choosing just to stay in Airbnbs owned or rented by white people? No, we, we don't observe that. We don't observe who the buyers are necessarily, but we are trying to infer racial discrimination or possible racial discrimination from the price differential that exists between Asian and Hispanic hosts and white hosts for equivalent rentals. In order to do the study, we had to think about what are all of the variables that might influence the price of an Airbnb unit. So as a host, you think about some of the rental unit characteristics when you're putting up the price. You're thinking about uh, things like whether it's a whole apartment or a private room that you're renting out, how many bedrooms and bathrooms you have, how many guests you can accommodate, uh, et cetera. And there are some other features that are always listed on Airbnb, such as if the host has a Facebook or a LinkedIn page, um, what is the minimum number of nights required for the guest to stay, um, how are the cancellation policies, et cetera. So these are some of the rental listing features that can potentially affect price. You know, there have been a lot of studies that looked at the Airbnb experience from the viewpoint of the guest. I'm curious why you decided to look as an economist at kind of the the supply side of this, the host side of this. Yeah, so there is a study that looks at what's happening at the host side. So as a host, can I now see who this potential renter is if they are a minority and can I discriminate against them by not renting out to them. And there is a study that that does that. Um, and they actually send out emails with different names, with white-sounding and black-sounding names, and then they see the behavior of Airbnb hosts. Um, and that's another type of discrimination that we're talking about. However, it's very, very difficult for us to observe what the buyers are doing. And so in order to address the issue that we were interested in, 
we had to look at it from the aspect of the host and see are there any is there any type of possible discrimination that could be taking place that now manifests itself in the prices of Airbnb units so thinking about this going forward and trying to you know as you talk about it correct a market failure um is that possible and you know how how would that even be done i mean i guess would you have to remove all personally identifying information out of a peer-to-peer marketplace in order to do that? That's a good question. And that's a difficult question to ask as well because Airbnb is not forcing hosts to put this information out there. Um, I'm going to say two things about this. One, that there is a very uh, good faith effort on the part of Airbnb that does um, let buyers and sellers or potential renters and hosts sign a non-discrimination agreement. Um, and, and that really addresses some of this issue where you you basically um, sign an agreement saying you are not going to discriminate based on religion, race, um, sexual orientation, etc. on the Airbnb online marketplace. Um, another thing that they are, they've been doing is to offer optional diversity training to both hosts and to potential renters, and that's optional. Um, But one thing that could be done is to make biographical information less prominent on the Airbnb um, online marketplace. So when a potential renter goes there, it's sort of not all in your face Mm. that you're seeing the race of the host and all of their biographical information. Maybe they can make user reviews more prominent. And so there is no silver bullet here. Venu Kakar is an assistant professor of economics at San Francisco State University. Thanks so much for talking with us about your work. Thank you, Lizzie. We reached out to Airbnb and they told us every Airbnb host sets their own price and has access to smart pricing tools that provide dynamic feedback based on their unique space without any regard or consideration for host identity. Starting Monday, thousands of low-wage workers, clergy, and community leaders will kick off 40 days of public gatherings across the country. Their goal is to bring attention to the more than 40 million Americans who have jobs but still live in poverty. And if this sounds familiar, that's on purpose. It's part of a grassroots effort to revive Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, which stalled after King's assassination. Marketplace's Renata Sago has more. Hi, Renata. It's good to have you here. Great to be here. Take us back 50 years or so to the original Poor People's Campaign. Um, You know, remind people what the focus was back then. Well, Dr. King introduced the idea of a poverty campaign back in 1967. His travels from state to state had made him really keenly aware of the stark differences between how workers in the service sector, I'm talking maids, waitresses, maintenance men and women, how they lived 
and what they earned really compared to the middle class and the wealthy of the country. He'd also seen the role segregation played in the earning power or really lack thereof um, when it came to black workers compared to whites. So his goal with the Poor People's Campaign was to demand that the government give workers protections like unemployment insurance and better and equal wages. Today's campaign, Lizzie, is no different. So who is part of this campaign now? You have people in the campaign who are working two, three, four jobs to keep their lights on. Um, Some are in the service sector. They're fast food workers. They're making low wages. Others aren't. You have people who may have had a well-paying job at a certain point and a health emergency hurt their income flow. I actually went to Memphis and met with the fast food worker, Ashley Cathy. She works three jobs. One is at Church's Chicken. The other is at the Crown Plaza Hotel. And then the third is at a nightclub. Between these three jobs, Lizzie, she works about 100 hours a week. And none of these positions are full-time, which really means Kathy doesn't qualify for full-time benefits. I don't get food stamps. I don't get Medicaid. I have to pay for that. If I want to go to the doctor, I got to pay cash out of my pocket. And it can be $500 and higher. And Kathy told me she comes from a family of fast food workers. Her mom, who died a couple of years ago, actually worked for years at Wendy's. I think people will listen to this and say, The kind of poverty that we were talking about in 67, 68 is different, but fundamentally, it does not seem to have changed that much when we think about what it means to be poor in America. Right. You're absolutely right. And I spoke with an economist, Margaret Sims. She's with the Urban Institute. That's a think tank out of D.C. They do a lot of research on social and economic policy. Sims said that because... You know, this is happening because the economic structure has not changed in the United States. Working in the service sector is still limited. There aren't chances for mobility. Then add to that, African-Americans like Ashley Cathy and her mother, they're disproportionately poor. And that's because of the remnants of segregation, which really limited blacks to opportunities to access wealth. It limited opportunities to even be in unions to have worker protections. Um, Sim says it's really important also for us to understand that the difference between being rich and poor isn't just about wages. It's not just about how much you're making in your job. It's also about what kind of assets you have. Do you have a house? Uh, is it, does it have a heavy mortgage on it? Do you have stocks? Do you have bonds? Do you have money in the bank? And Ashley Cathy told me she has none of these things. She's not able to save. And another thing that the economist, Margaret Sims, who we just heard, told me is that all of this matters when we think of wealth or poverty as this sort of tangible thing that is passed down from generation to generation. So when we think about this modern version of the Poor People's Campaign, how are organizers planning to sort of bring it back so that we think about it as as something in 2018? Yeah, well, there have been a series of actions leading up to this moment. Kathy and other volunteers, they've been participating in nonviolent direct action training sessions. These are very much in the spirit of the civil rights movement from 50 years ago. They're using peaceful protests to really bring forth these radical ideas. Kathy's planning to join other workers by peacefully demonstrating at state capitals across the country over the next six weeks. They'll be urging lawmakers to make policy changes. They'll be urging them to raise the minimum wage and and make health care more affordable. Clergy participating in the campaign, they'll also be holding spiritual gatherings. And these are all taking place or really around the same time the Poor People's March on Washington took place 50 years ago, mid-May. 
What is different? What are the new things that they are are trying to focus on right now? The original Poor People's Campaign, it focused on what Dr. King called three evils, racism, poverty, militarism. With this revamp, organizers, they're still focusing on those three things, but they're also placing an emphasis on the environment and morality. Now, Edie Love, she's the treasurer of the campaign's Tennessee chapter. She explained it to me, the morality part, as this idea that people are being denied basic human necessities based on how much they make. We have to argue against that narrative and help people understand everybody has a right to health care, everybody has a right to food, everybody has a right to housing, and no one is undeserving of that. It is a basic human right. Something else Edie Love told me is that they want it clear that this campaign, they want everyone involved, everyone who has at some point had to work hard or knows someone who's working hard. And it's really across political lines, religious lines, ethnic and racial lines. It's Marketplaces for Nada Sego here in New York for the week. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And you can read more about Renata's story on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. We always enjoy hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover on the show. Last week, we talked with the new superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District, Austin Butner, about running a school like a business. There are differences. You learn that the values of the organization, the purpose of the organization can be different. Schools don't have a bottom line. Uh, But that doesn't mean you can't measure and hold accountable. It doesn't mean you can't make sure your workforce is well-trained and have the tools they need to succeed. On Facebook, Matthew A. Collins wrote, In Ohio, the state takes over districts that struggle. They always appoint business executives to run these districts. To date, not one has improved. Most end up doing worse. Schools need more experts to fix their problem, not less. We also ran a story about how to be an ice cream maker. Kevin Hutchinson wrote in to suggest that we do a spot on being a fly fishing guide. Kevin, you are preaching to the choir. I have fly fished since I was 13, so I am extremely down with this. You can comment on anything you hear on the show and share your stories, too. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. We've got a voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. Still to come on the show, what are you reading these days? If it's a romance novel, then you are part of a publishing success story. Find out more in a minute. As a result of the Me Too movement, industries and institutions have been forced to reckon with their histories and their workplace policies. And that conversation is now taking place in business schools. Katie Johnston wrote about this trend for the Boston Globe. I spoke with her earlier this week and asked how business schools are changing their curricula to teach students about sexual harassment. Well, a lot of them are doing workshops, some of them just doing one-off classes, conversations about sexual harassment. Uh, The Sloan School at MIT is launching a class next spring that is going to look at um, inclusion and equity and include sexual harassment as part of that. 
Carnegie Mellon is um, working on developing a virtual reality training about sexual harassment. Um, and one thing they're doing at Northeastern, which is really interesting, is they're overhauling the whole curriculum at the business school there. And um, in part, they want to weave issues facing working women into the fabric of the coursework. Yeah. Can we tell how widespread this is? It doesn't seem to be extremely widespread. I had the uh, Forte Foundation, which works with uh, women and business schools, do a brief survey of their members. And they came up with a handful of business schools that were doing things. And I surveyed some Boston business schools and talked to Sloan and um, Northeastern and found some interesting things there. But not a ton is going on. But the Forte Foundation uh, seems to think that it's going to happen a lot more uh, as time goes on. Do you think that this is something that that we would see in curricula for various business programs if it were not for Me Too and the, you know, sort of high profile sexual harassment cases we've seen over the past year? I think it's definitely a response to Me Too. I mean, business schools have started tailoring more things to women as more women have enrolled in uh, business schools and getting their MBAs. I mean, by 2030, I think they're projecting that half of MBA students will be women, and that's up from, you know, 30% not that long ago. So I think that that it's kind of growing out of that. Also, in the last couple of years, there's been more of an emphasis on ethics and values and not just finance and accounting. So I think it also plays into that trend as well, that realizing that the workplace is a lot more than just numbers and dollars. Yeah, when we think of business school, I mean, certainly one of the knocks against it in the past has been kind of a bro-y culture and a focus on finance, not on thinking about ethics and workplace leadership. Did you get a sense from the students that you talked to that they want, you know, a, a broader curriculum and a curriculum that thinks about, you know, things beyond numbers? Definitely. They definitely see the need to expand it. At the Sloan School at MIT in December, the students put on a series of workshops on their own. You know, they they brought in some some improv actors and uh, um, some of the students I talked to, men and women, were saying they felt a real responsibility to address this uh, as, you know, these future leaders coming from these high power business schools to stop the, the culture of sexual harassment, which has become so ingrained in corporate America. I'm wondering where you see this kind of training working into a business school curriculum and whether it's something that's in there for the long haul. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, sometimes, you know, the next hot new trend might come along and they might drop it. But it does seem to be a huge part of workplace culture. And I think business schools realize they are training the next generation of executives and business leaders, and they have a real opportunity to change the culture. Katie Johnston is a business reporter for the Boston Globe. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Four years ago, Elon Musk's company SpaceX broke ground on a new launch pad at the southernmost tip of Texas. But the site in Brownsville remains unfinished. And for nearby residents, frustration over changes now outweighs excitement over the project and the money it could generate. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav has more. It's a rainy day in Boca Chica and the area is fogged in. 
Terry Heaton stands on a raised porch in his backyard. He squints into the light wind. We see deer up here, a lot of coyotes. Yeah, it'd be a, I mean, it's right there. Boom. Heaton lives in Boca Chica Village, an isolated 45-minute drive from the border city of Brownsville and just two miles from Boca Chica State Beach. He's lived here for 18 years with his wife, Bonnie, whose name is emblazoned on his left bicep. He's a retired construction worker. I f- do lawn work and fish, almost in that order. Okay. <laughs> the Heatons are one of two year-round families living in this remote cluster of more than 30 vacation homes. But Heaton says that isolation and this village are jeopardized because of a new neighbor. Three, two, one. You can see SpaceX's massive antennas from Heaton's kitchen table. The launch pad is less than two miles away. Heaton worries about a rocket exploding like the ones the company suffered in 2015 and 2016, over 1,000 miles away in Florida. He's concerned that the company's been authorized to make monthly launches. But he's mostly upset because SpaceX hasn't talked to residents directly in two years. We've had three meetings, I think it is, with SpaceX, and that was in the very beginning. And what they told us then was, you know, we were not going to have to leave. We weren't going to have to do any of this. They were going to be good neighbors. Haven't lived up to any of it as far as I'm concerned. SpaceX opts to speak to the community through local media, parsing out progress notes every few months. Heaton learned from a press conference that SpaceX would launch the biggest ship in history just down the road once the facility is finished. Here's CEO Elon Musk in February. Most likely it's going to happen in our Brownsville location because we've got a lot of land with nobody around. And so if it blows up, it's cool. SpaceX followed up with a statement saying the notion that SpaceX would do anything to endanger its neighbors is simply not true, touting their many tests and regulations. Andrew Gage is not worried about a rocket explosion. He's the other permanent resident of Boca Chica Village. He moved to the area from California two years ago. But unlike he estimates 99% of his neighbors, he loves SpaceX. The idea of some people that this whole thing should be canceled so they can come down from Minnesota every winter and, you know, wreck the opportunity to be Brownsville, to be on a world map, someplace famous, and that seems a little outrageous to me. After all, Gage says SpaceX is a business and an opportunity for the region. In a statement, SpaceX spokesperson James Gleason said the company's invested millions in the project, most recently a solar panel field to power its ground antennas. Texas has earmarked $13 million for SpaceX's project. The Cameron County Spaceport Development Corporation administers the money. Executive Director Nick Serafi says it's a good deal because it'll lead to more outside investment and jobs. We should know within the next 12 to 18 months what kind of impact it's having. But the biggest impact is going to be on tourism. An estimated 100,000 college students came to nearby South Padre Island for spring break this year. That's the same number of people that poured into Brevard County, Florida for SpaceX's Falcon Heavy launch back in February. So the prospect of 12 spring break-like events a year? Would be awesome. For the area, I mean, it's just it's just an influx of hotel rooms, flights, restaurants. So the, it would it would have a significant impact in our area. The nearby city of Harlingen has already announced three new hotels as a result of the potential launches. Area economic development professionals are optimistic that SpaceX will transform the area. Boca Chica resident Andrew Gage says it could transform human history. 
this could be where we leave to spread humanity throughout the solar system. Whether Boca Chica Village will be a part of that transformation is what Gage's neighbors worry about. In Brownsville, I'm Paul Flav for Marketplace. The weekend is a wonderful time to curl up with a book, after you have listened to the show, of course. And it seems Americans love romance novels. This billion-dollar industry makes up a third of the U.S. fiction market, and 92% of romance readers prefer print, which is good news for these sisters in Los Angeles. Hello. Welcome. To the Ripped Goddess. That sounded so big. I know. <laughs> that was weird. Okay. Um, I'm Leah Koch. And I'm B. Koch. And this is Fitzwilliam Waffles, our dog. And the three of us are the owners of the Ripped Bodice Bookstore in Culver City, California, which is the only exclusively romance bookstore in the Northern Hemisphere. We divide our store into four major subgenres. So we have contemporary, historical, hopefully self-explanatory, uh, paranormal section, and then an erotica section. A romance reader is a very unique reader. They are some of the most loyal readers um, amongst all readers, they buy not one copy but two copies. They buy the ebook. They send a copy to their moms or their friends, and they'll talk about it on Twitter and anywhere they can find people who will listen to them. And that's the kind of reader y- you want, and the kind of customer a bookstore really wants. All right, you're all set. Have a great day. So we're over here in the contemporary section, and then within that we have even smaller sections. So we have suspense, we have LGBTQ plus, we have young adults. Um, all different, anything you could possibly want, there probably exists a romance about it. We want to encourage other bookstore owners to stock this genre because it's such a financial juggernaut and can really make such so much money for them. It's difficult. So much romance comes out. Um, independently published, small published, small press published, and then the big presses. So it's very difficult to stay on top of what's new and fresh and what people are really responding to. Paranormal in particular has a lot of different things under that umbrella. Witches, vampires, shifters, which is anyone that can turn into a different animal. Werewolves would fall under that category. We actually change our physical space quite a, quite frequently. Um, we hear from customers that they they're interested in this this new subgenre that's getting more attention, um, and that tells us that we need to pull that out, that we need to highlight that, and, and get some more offerings. In, for instance. Space romance. It's very popular right now. <laughs> and now we have a whole section of aliens and spaceships. Six of our 10 bestsellers last year were books by women of color. And that is just a number that you cannot ignore. We really want to see the big names in romance putting out books by black women, women of color, women who are not the typical romance novel heroine that we've been seeing for years. Yeah. We started the State of Racial Diversity and Romance Publishing Report. It's come out twice so far. It'll be annually, which measures how many books by authors of color 20 major romance publishers are putting out every year. Um, and the numbers are pretty abysmal. But there is. There's a very famous Pew study that says the most likely person in the United States to read a book cover to cover is a black woman who's gone to college. The books flying off the shelves, the ones that people are desperate to get their hands on, the ones that they come in the day they're released, um, 
are frequently something different and something that they're that they haven't seen before. Alyssa Cole being an excellent example, her new book, A Princess in Theory, is so fresh and it has a beautiful black couple on the cover. And we could not keep it in stock for weeks. It was literally flying off our shelves. That story was produced by Paulina Velasco. You heard Bee and Leah Koch recommending Alyssa Cole's writing. So we decided to get her on the line from her home in Martinique. Alyssa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the things I'm fascinated about with your books is you often set things in deep historical moments. When we think about An Extraordinary Union, it's part of a romance trilogy set during the Civil War. Describe kind of why you do that and and what way you think that sets your books apart. I do it for a few reasons, I guess. Um, I always loved historical romances, but in general, they did not feature anyone who looked like me. Um, For the most part, there have, of course, been other authors writing like, you know, Beverly Jenkins, who is the queen of African-American historical romance. A lot of it is me coming across an event and saying, I didn't know that happened or I didn't know people like this existed or I didn't know they were doing that. And uh, what if they were doing that and also falling in love? You know, I'm curious about the role of the Internet sort of in your career this idea of fanfic and sort of collaborative communities. Do do you think that having different internet avenues out there kind of allows marginalized writers to to crack open the doors of the the publishing world a little bit? Oh, definitely. I would say that the internet has been a huge, huge boon for marginalized authors. One of the ways that I got started, I started reading a website called Literatica, as you can tell, there is erotica there. But one of the draws, <laughs> one of the attractions was that there was a section where you could find stories about women of color and black women. And I was like, OK, this is something that, you know, I was able to sometimes find it on Amazon, which is another thing that has been a boon to authors of color and from other marginalized groups, self-publishing. But um, so I started seeing these, you know, reading these stories and saying, okay, well, maybe I should start trying to get serious about writing since it's something that I've wanted to do. And, you know, kind of being inspired by these people who were posting week after week. So the internet is really allowing people to find, find and create content and ways to publish and get that content out to readers. Well, that brings me to the idea of kind of building networks. Uh, you were featured in a, a story um, on BuzzFeed that talked about Kensington Publishing and sort of having a, a network where you are in many ways supported by other Black women. How important do you think that has been to your success? I think it's been really integral. I will say it hasn't only been Black women. Just authors from different marginalized groups really try to help each other. And um, yeah. in my mind, there is room for everyone. Um, which is why I think that the lack of inclusive romance and traditional publishing is an issue because there are readers for pretty much anything you could publish. Yeah, everybody falls in love. Yeah, exactly. The Romance Writers of America, the trade group, did some studies on who is reading romance in 2017. And one of the big takeaways was that romance is being read by lots of younger emerging readers. And I guess I wonder, when you are working... Do you think about your audience in that way? Or are you thinking, 
I'm in love with this story and I'm going to craft something that feels, you know, organic to that? I guess thinking about those people is organic to my writing. Um, because in a way, you know, every story I'm writing is in a way something that I wish I had had when I was younger or even right now. You know, maybe some 15-year-old or 16-year-old will pick this up and read this and hopefully maybe feel the same way that I felt the first time I picked up a romance novel with a black heroine. Alyssa Cole is an award-winning romance writer, and her latest book is A Princess in Theory. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Ready to dig into some romance novels? Well, we got Alyssa Cole to give us a few recommendations. Check them out at Marketplace.org. The U.S. and China are talking trade again next week, so we are going to bring you an encore of the Marketplace special Trade-Off with Scott Tong and Sarah Gardner. They'll guide you through the history of global trade and who wins and who loses when it comes to tariffs. That's Trade-Off on the next Marketplace Weekend. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills, Paulina Velasco, and Peter Ballinon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Drew Jostad is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.